I'll remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online, and that our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. If you enjoy these programs and are not a member, please consider supporting them by joining the Virginia Historical Society, which is really easy to do, at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And now for today's program. In his book, The Matthews Men, Seven Brothers and the War Against Hitler's U-Boats, today's speaker uses the experience of merchant mariners from Matthews County, Virginia, to tell the largely forgotten story of the heroics and sacrifices of the U.S. Merchant Marine in World War II. Matthews, a rural outpost on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay, has been the cradle of merchant sea captains and mariners since before the American Revolution. When America entered World War II in December 1941, Matthews' mariners were scattered on ships throughout the war zones, and they became prime targets for German U-boats trying to choke off the Allied supply line. Matthews' mariners faced U-boats in the North and South Atlantic, the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, and even the, in the icy Barents Sea in the Arctic Circle. Some died terrible deaths. Others survived torpedo explosions, flaming oil slicks, storms, shark attacks, and harrowing lifeboat odysseys, only to ship out again as soon as they'd return to safety. Nearly every family in Matthews County had a personal stake in the U-boat war, and none had a greater stake than the family of Captain Jesse and Henrietta Hodges and their seven sons who had experienced the war in all its horrors and triumphs. William Giroux spent 30 years as a newspaper reporter, much of it covering Hampton Roads for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, writing everything from the military to politics to business to hurricanes and crime and punishment. He won numerous awards for breaking news coverage, feature writing, and investigative journalism. After leaving journalism, he worked as a writer for Maersk Line Limited, a Norfolk-based subsidiary of one of the world's largest commercial shipping lines. The Matthews Men is unbelievably his first book, and he's now at work on a second. So let's please give, please give a nice, warm VHS welcome to Bill Jarreau. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor being invited here, and thank you all for coming to, uh, to hear me speak. Um, I'm Bill Giroux, and my book, The Matthews Men, um, is really the story of the mostly forgotten exploits of the U.S. Merchant Marine in World War II. And I tell the story through the adventures of a sort of an odd brotherhood of merchant sea captains and merchant mariners from Matthews County, Virginia. And I know a number of you here are familiar with Matthews. Some of you are from Matthews. Matthews is a little over an hour from here. It's, uh, it's really kind of an outpost on the Chesapeake Bay. 
It's, uh, I love Matthews, but it's, there's not much in Matthews except pretty scenery. <laughs> and Matthews is not on the way to anywhere. <laughs> and the people in Matthews are, are fine with this. They're happy about it. And they have a saying that one does not go to Matthews unless going to Matthews. <laughs> so Matthews is, it's isolated. But I, I tell people it's not isolated in a, uh, a creepy deliverance type of way. It is, it's a friendly place. It's a nice place. And, uh, but because it's isolated, it's always been more really a part of the bay and the ocean than of the land. And ever since, you know, for hundreds of years, it has been a cradle, uh, as you put it, of, of sea captains and merchant mariners. Um, merchant mariners, for those of you who are not familiar with the term of the U.S. Merchant Marine, it sounds like a branch of the military, but it's not. It's really just a group of uh, private civilians, private citizens, who uh, sail cargo ships, freighters and tankers, for private companies hauling cargo from port to port for profit. Um, but during wartime, and this has been through true throughout our history, the merchant marine always becomes sort of an arm of the military. It hauls military cargo because the military doesn't have all the ships it needs to get stuff where it needs to go. And this was particularly true in World War II. Um, the merchant marine, the, uh, the men, Matthew's men and their shipmates, they hauled pretty much everything that the Allied troops needed to survive and fight on the foreign battlefields. Uh, Guns, ammunition, planes, tanks, fuel, food, medical supplies, bug repellent, everything. The merchant marine was the supply line. And for that reason, everywhere they sailed in the European theater of the war, they were attacked by German U-boats. Um, the U-boats mission was to cut the supply line, to stop these men and materials from getting across the ocean because the Germans realized that if America could, could do that, if we could project our economic and industrial power and our manpower across the ocean, that they would lose the war. So they attacked the merchant ships in the South Atlantic off Brazil, Cape Town, um, in the Arctic, uh, on the way to Russia, because in World War II, Russia was our ally. We were both fighting against Hitler. They attacked the uh, merchant ships in the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, and all along the shore of the United States, right close to our shores, one U-boat captain wrote that he got close enough to Coney Island that he could see the Ferris wheel. Um, uh, ships were torpedoed, or they were sunk, attacked by U-boats right off the tourist beaches, right in front of tourists in my hometown of Virginia Beach and out in, uh, down in Florida. Ships were torpedoed right at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Um, it was so bad during particularly at the beginning of the war, that a publisher of Merchant Mariner's textbooks hurried into print a little volume called How to Abandon Ship. And it was, just like it sounds, it was a no-nonsense, step-by-step guide of how to avoid getting killed when your ship was torpedoed. And it had everything. It was how to launch lifeboats, how to, you know, different swimming strokes. It had a section on how to survive if you were marooned on a deserted island in the Arctic. And it had a subsection about how to kill and eat polar bears. And for the record, you shoot a polar bear right behind the shoulder blades, because that's, you'll pierce his heart. You never shoot him in the water, because you will never be able to pull him out. 
and if you get him, if you kill him, never cook him because he'll be too tough. Uh, so you have to eat him raw. <laughs> and above all, never, no matter how hungry you are, never touch polar bear liver. Now, for the record, there is no record of a stranded merchant crew ever killing and eating a polar bear, or vice versa. But the, the fact that these guys who wrote the book went to so much trouble and included this in there will give you a sense of how, how bad it was. Uh, more than a ship a day was being torpedoed. Its crew lost. Um, at the beginning of the war, the United States kind of let down the merchant mariners. We didn't have a lot of ships and planes. Um, and protecting them wasn't a priority. And then at the end of the war, we kind of forgot about them. They're sort of they let, left out of the benefits, and they're not really part of the American narrative of how we won World War II. So the Matthews men is, uh, is really their story. And I wrote the book as an adventure story. I mean, that's how I think it is. A bunch of guys, they're doing their job. They were presented with an enormous challenge. And they passed through the fire, and they, they helped save the world. But I put a lot of research, years of research into this. And I'm hoping that it, when you read it, as, as well as an adventure story, you'll kind of come away with an appreciation for what these mariners and their families, because a lot of the book is about the effect, uh, the impact on their families of them going through this. And I hope you'll come away with an appreciation for that. Um, the book has more than uh, 70 photos, some of them taken out of the uh, trunks and uh, attics and others uh, action shots from the, uh, uh, the National Archives. I'd like to show you some of, the, some of the photos now that I think will give you a sense of what the book is like. This is the ring. This is a gold signet ring bearing the initials GDH. GDH stands for George Dewey Hodges. And Dewey, as he was known, is a Matthews County sea captain, the captain of a merchant ship. Um, this is his initials. Um, he was wearing this ring in late July 1942 when his little freighter was torpedoed off the coast of Cuba and he was killed. He went missing. He was lost, as they say in Matthews. Not too long after that, this ring was discovered along with a mass of human remains in the belly of a big shark caught in waters not too far from where Dewey's ship went down. Uh, some very well-intentioned people got this ring back to Virginia, back to Dewey's family, thinking that this would somehow be solace to them of some kind. But unfortunately, uh, it turned out the arrival of the ring back here proved to be more pain and confusion than, than anything else. This is Dewey, Dewey Hodges, the owner of the ring. To me, Dewey exemplified some of the best qualities of the Matthews men. He had very little formal education. He had only made it through the fourth grade. But he rose to the peak of his profession to be a merchant sea captain, to command a ship. And in Matthews, a maritime community, that was the ultimate. Uh, parents didn't hope their children would grow up to be doctors or lawyers. They wanted them to grow up to be the captains of ships. That was it in Matthews. Dewey was not only a, a fine captain, but he was a decent guy. He was treated his men well. Some of the men, some of the captains were tyrants, but not Dewey. He was about as much a family man as you could be. Um, 
being a sea captain because you were gone all the time. And he never forgot where he came from. He never forgot what it was like to grow up in Matthews and have very few opportunities. You either farmed or you fished or you went to sea. And Dewey always went out of his way to hire as many Matthews men as he could to be on his cruise. Because for them, he saw this as a way that he could help them get out and make something of themselves as, as he had done. Uh, every time Dewey came home to Matthews from his ship for a weekend, he would put out word throughout the county any jobs he had available on his ship or any jobs he knew of anywhere else. And if a man was interested in one of these jobs, all he had to do was be standing outside of Richardson's drugstore on Main Street in Matthews at 1 p.m. on Sunday when Dewey was on his way back and Dewey would pull up in his car, the man would get in, he would drive him to the docks and sign him aboard a ship. That was one of the ways in which Matthews, which was a very tiny community, maybe 7,500 people during World War II, had mariners scattered on the oceans of the world. They were all over the place. This is Dewey's family. His whole family was in the Merchant Marine, the seven brothers um, and their formidable father. Dewey is third from the left on the top row. He is looking pretty formal in his captain's uniform. Normally he was a jovial type of guy. But there was nothing jovial about this guy. <laughs> top left is Captain Jesse Hodges. He is the father of the brothers. He is the patriarch of the Hodges family. Jesse, Captain Jesse as everybody called him, was a no-nonsense tugboat captain. He was a master mariner. Everyone agreed he was the best, but he was also something of an SOB. <laughs> he didn't suffer fools or greenhorns or idlers or really anybody gladly. And when I was working on this book, one of his grandsons gave me a picture of him, this picture right here of Captain Jesse. And I hung it right up by my computer my workstation. Anytime I felt like quitting early for the day, <laughs> I would just sort of glance up and he would be glaring down at me and you can't tell this man no. Now, Captain Jesse had gone to sea at the age of 10, 10, and he had spent most of his life at sea, at the wheel of a tugboat. He came home only a couple of days at a time, a couple of times a year, to visit his long-suffering wife, Henrietta, and his family. And when Captain Jesse did come home, he was pretty helpless in all matters on land. He just was inexperienced, with one exception. Every time Captain Jesse came home, he seemed to leave Henrietta with another child. <laughs> and the family had 14 children in all, and despite these infrequent visits, and every time they finally ran out of names for their children, and they named the 14th and last child Hilda 14 Hodges. <laughs> Captain Jesse um, encouraged all seven of his sons, encouraged being a mild word for what Captain Jesse did, to follow him to sea. Again, this was a way that you could make something yourself, you know? And that's what he wanted them to do. And six of his seven boys ended up becoming merchant sea captains. The seventh, Spencer Hodges, 
started out at sea, but injured his back aboard his brother Dewey's ship, and he had to go ashore. So Spencer ended up becoming a sheriff of Matthews County, and also as a became an unofficial recruiter for his brother's ships. Anytime one of his brothers needed a crewman, they would get hold of Spencer and Matthews, and he would hunt around Matthews till he found somebody that wanted the job. That was another way in which all the Matthews men were scattered over the oceans of the world. Um, all of the Hodges brothers, all seven, were different, as a lot of siblings are, but I, I would like to leave it to the book to introduce you to the others. I do want to tell you a little bit about Captain Jesse's wife, Henrietta. <laughs> and this is Henrietta. This is Henny Hodges. She is here in the, she's churning butter, obviously, in the company of one of the Hodges goats. Henny is one of my favorite characters in the book. She is not a mariner, but she is the glue that held the Hodges family together. And this was true of a lot of women in Matthews. With the men gone all the time, if you were the wife of a mariner or the uh, related to one at all, you, you pretty much did everything. You had to grow up to be resourceful and tough and capable and be able to handle anything that happened. Um, Henrietta worked long hours pretty much every day of her life, not only rearing this huge family that Captain Jesse kept adding to and leaving her to deal with, but also running the Hodges 60-acre farm. The farm was located on a point of land called Gales Neck in Matthews. And if Matthews was an outpost, Gales Neck was an outpost of an outpost. <laughs> it had no electricity, no running water, no indoor plumbing, no radio, no telephone, no nothing. Everyone had, everything there had to be done the old-fashioned way. And Henny was in charge of it. Her children and grandchildren grew up thinking she was superhuman. One of her grandchildren told me, you know, I felt when I was growing up, if I had accidentally cut my arm off, that Henny could have fixed it. <laughs> but Henny had led a very hard life. I mean, her days were hard. And she had uh, seen th three of her children die at a young age. Two of them had died right in front of her as she watched helplessly. And whether it was that or whatever it was, she was given to f periods of crying. Several times a day, she would just for no apparent reason, she would just break down and sob. And she, when this happened, she would throw herself into her chores and just keep at it until the feeling passed. Unfortunately, the U-boat war would give her more cause for sorrow. Um, the Hodges were far from the only family in Matthews heavily involved in the Merchant Marine. Uh, the Callis family had a number of mariners, including three brothers. Uh, who were sea captains. The Hammond family had three brothers at sea, and th those three Hammond brothers were torpedoed a total of four times on four different ships in a period of only a few months. Um, at the height of the U-boat war, in Matthews, pretty much every family in the county either had a loved one at sea or a close friend. So as a result, Matthews experienced the U-boat war to its fullest. This is a U-boat. This is a photograph taken by a Nazi propaganda photographer from a U-boat conning tower showing a U-boat pursuing a merchant ship at sea. And this pursuit almost surely didn't end well for the merchant ship. A contest between a U-boat and a merchant ship was no contest. Most merchant ships 
1942 at the beginning of the war and really throughout the war were slow, old, uh, unarmed. As the war went on, some of them got um, Army or Navy gun crews, but on, through no fault of those gun crews, putting a gun tub on a merchant ship was not a good way to protect it from U-boats. And a lot of the Navy men died right alongside the merchant mariners when their ships were torpedoed. U-boats, by comparison, they were faster than pretty much any merchant ship at sea, and they were armed to the teeth. They had torpedoes. A lot of them had these deck cannons. This one doesn't have one, but these powerful guns mounted on the foredeck of the U-boat that was powerful enough to sink a ship without the U-boat even having to spend a precious torpedo. Um, U-boats have this mystique about them as the ultimate weapon, you know, the, the, the deadly weapon. But one of the things I try to show in the book is that U-boats were really had a lot of weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They were not submarines the way we think of submarines today, the nuclear subs, the boomers that can stay underwater for months at a time without even communicating with the outside world. U-boats were diving vessels. They basically functioned much better on the surface, but they could switch over from their engines to battery power, kind of like a Prius, temporarily <laughs> for short periods of time to get in position for attacks and to evade pursuers. But U-boats were slower than most of the warships that pursued them. And if they could be found, if they could be located and driven underwater, they were pretty helpless. And they had to depend on the wiles, the cleverness, the trickery of the U-boat commander to outsmart their pursuers and allow them to fight another day. Um, you've, you may have seen the great German U-boat movie, Das Boot, where the, the crew is in the U-boat and they're, they're cowering because there are depth charges going off all around the U-boat and they're afraid one will get too close and destroy them. Uh, life in a U-boat was miserable. It was a, uh, the air was foul, the food was rancid. The, uh, it was such close quarters that the men literally slept on top of torpedoes, which were stored under their bunks. And everything in a U-boat had to be done just right. Every, a certain sequence had to be followed, and everything you did, and any deviation from that could spell disaster. And that extended even to the U-boat's toilets. And there is one case that I describe, although I promise not in great detail, where an improperly flushed toilet doomed a U-boat. But for all of their shortcomings, U-boats were powerful weapons. And they were especially powerful when they could be put in a situation where they had lots of targets and very weak defenses. They were ship-sinking machines. They could just go from one ship to the next, work very quickly. The commander of the U-boat force, Admiral Carl Dunitz, was a master of constantly moving U-boats around, shifting them to different areas of the ocean to whatever was at that given point the weakest point in the Allied supply line. And at the beginning of World War II, the weakest point by far was the coastline of the United States. This is an American merchant ship, a Liberty ship, the Thomas McKean, under attack by a U-boat in the North Atlantic. U-boat has already torpedoed the Thomas McKean and is now pummeling it with its deck cannon. And I've included this partly to give you an idea of what it's like to be a merchant mariner and to be on a ship that was under attack by a U-boat and try to get off of there with your life. It was a tremendous challenge. The first torpedo strike often came in the dead of night with no warning. 
the torpedo would explode. It might catch the ship on fire, depending on what the ship's cargo was. That might catch on fire. That might explode. Uh, and a lot of these ships would just go down in minutes, like two or three minutes, four minutes. And a lot of the men that died in them never even had time to get out of their quarters. They were just entombed at the bottom of the sea with their ship. If you did get out before, while the ship was under attack, or if you were on, you know, on watch when it happened, you would encounter a scene something like this. It's fire all around you. Some of the lifeboats may be wrecked. The deck is listing, you know, tilting steeply. It's hard to stand up. Very difficult to launch a lifeboat under those circumstances, even if you've practiced it. Um, the water might be rough, might be freezing cold. It might be full of sharks. And it might even be on fire, because in many cases, if the ship was hauling oil or gasoline, uh, the torpedo strike would rip it open the tanks and the, the cargo would spill out onto the surface of the ocean. It would float and it would catch fire. And it would create basically a floating, flaming oil slick all around the sinking ship. And any man that jumped overboard from the sinking ship to try to save his life and landed in that would be badly burned, if not killed outright. If you did get away from the ship, from the fire, in a lifeboat or on a raft, your problems might be just beginning. Because lifeboats in those days, if you've seen the movie Captain Phillips, a modern lifeboat is almost in, you know, it's enclosed. It's built to survive and, you know, overturn and seize. But in, in those days, lifeboats were sturdy, but they were just open boats. They were exposed to the snow and the sleet and the wind and the heat. Um, and the people in them might have to sail, might have to drift for days or weeks or even months. Some of these boats drifted for thousands of miles, just hoping they would be lucky enough to cross paths with a ship that would rescue them, or they would crunch ashore on some island where they could bushwhack through the brush and get some help. Um, so escaping from a torpedoing like this, a sinking, was, a, was like running a gauntlet of perils. But a lot of men did survive these, thousands of men, and then went right back to sea on different ships, sailing through, in many cases, the same waters they'd been torpedoed in and getting torpedoed again. Scores of men were torpedoed multiple times. One man was torpedoed a total of 10 times. Um, a Matthews sea captain, Mellon Respus, was torpedoed three times in a little over six months. His first torpedoing, he came through it pretty well. He got in a lifeboat and escaped. This is the second one. He was the captain of the Thomas McKean. And he managed to get away from this. He survived, but he was hospitalized in Trinidad for months. And when he finally got well enough to travel again, he was booked as a passenger on another ship commanded by another Matthews sea captain. And that ship was torpedoed. Um, just, I'll note that this the U-boat that sank, the Thomas McKean here, is the U-505. And some of you may know this. I see nods of recognition. But the, the U-505, two years after this sinking, was captured at sea in a daring escapade by the U.S. Navy and was brought back to the United States. And today, the U-505, intact, is on display in Chicago at the Museum of Science and Industry. And if you go there, you can squeeze through the U-boat from bow to stern and get a, come out of there with a pretty good idea of what it was like to be 
in a U-boat. And if you get there early in the day, some retired American submariners will take you through and show you how everything works. Um, one of the most interesting things I found in my research, and one of the surprising things, was the encounters after torpedoings between the U-boat commanders and the survivors of ships. And here is a picture of a U-boat. You can see the rail in the foreground approaching some men on a raft. It was very common for a U-boat to sink an American ship and then surface and approach the survivors in rafts and um, lifeboats and communicate with them. And what the Germans wanted mainly was information. They would pull up next to these guys, stare down at them from the conning tower at these helpless men, pull out a machine gun, and interrogate them. What was the name of your ship? What was its cargo? What was its destination? What was its tonnage? Tonnage is a ship's cargo capacity. And keeping track of the tonnage they were sinking was how the Germans kept track of how well they thought they were doing in the U-boat war. After the U-boat commanders got the answers to these questions, and a lot of times the guys and the, the Americans would, would lie to them, but when they got answers to these questions, a lot of the U-boats would just submerge and move off and leave men like this to the mercy of the sea, which in many cases was, was no mercy at all. Um, but a lot of U-boat commanders, this is what really surprised me, could not bring themselves to do this. They couldn't bring themselves to torpedo a ship, leave men out in lifeboats in the middle of the ocean to die. And the U-boat commanders would approach them, and after interrogating them, they'd give them food, they'd give them water, they'd give them medical attention. They would uh, give them the um, coordinates to the nearest land, the course to land, even offer to tow them part of the way. There is one case in... Um, one of the Matthews men, one of the three Hammond brothers, is torpedoed. He's in a lifeboat, and suddenly a U-boat surfaces right next to him. And everyone in the lifeboat must have been thinking, this is the end, you know, this is it. And instead, the U-boat commander opens the hatch and comes out and apologizes for having had to sink their ship. <laughs> he gives them food. He gives them, offers them medical attention. He um, gives them 50 packages of German cigarettes a great big box of French cookies, because the U-boat had been based in occupied France. And he gives them a big 10-gallon jug of water in a, like in a straw apron, like a Chianti bottle. And before he turns the water over to him, he squeezes fresh limes into the water. <laughs> and what he's doing is he's introducing vitamin C into this water to try to fortify these men against against scurvy, which is a vitamin deficiency disease, in the event that their lifeboat has to be at sea for a long time. And as the U-boat is moving off, the commander calls out to these uh, lifeboat survivors, come and see me after the war. Come and see me when this, in Germany when this is all over. <laughs> There's another U-boat commander that astonished the men in a lifeboat by asking them how the Brooklyn Dodgers were doing. <laughs> He had, uh, the U-boat commander had been, uh, lived in Brooklyn with his parents before the war and had become a Dodgers fan. But I don't want to give you the impression that the U-boat war was some sort of clubby, chummy affair. It wasn't. It was, uh, these examples did happen, and they happened more than you would think, but they were probably the exception rather than the rule. And some of these U-boat commanders were, they were cold. They were cold characters. And 
the uh, no no photo I don't think shows that any better than this and this is the same this is a close-up of the same photo you just saw and this this shows these seven men on this raft were the, the only men to get alive off a um, American oil tanker named the Muskogee that was torpedoed in the deep ocean in March 1942. These, every, there were 34 men on the oil tanker. Only these guys got off alive. And they are, again, they're photographed by a propaganda photographer from the German U-boat that is looking down on them. The, what strikes me about this is that the, these, the plight that these men are in, they, are, they did get away, but they're, look at them, they're hundreds of miles from land. It's March, the, it's, the water is rough. Um, their, their raft is really nothing more than a wooden platform nailed to some flotation drums. So it's better than swimming, but it's not going to keep these guys alive for very long up there. And if you look at the picture, and this picture is in the book also, they seem to know it. Some of them are shouting at the U-boat, but others are just sort of staring off into space. They know, that nothing is, they know that nothing is going to save them out there. And they were right. None of these men was ever seen again. None of the men on the Muskogee was ever heard from again. The uh, Allies didn't even know what happened to the Muskogee. It was torpedoed way out at sea. It sank without anyone except the U-boat crew as witnesses. And the first the Allies knew that there was any problem at all is when it didn't show up in port. And after a couple of weeks went by, they declared it missing, presumed sunk by submarine. And a lot of ships, American ships, 33 American ships just disappeared like this during the course of the war, torpedoed in far reaches of the ocean, and nobody ever knew what happened to these men. It's interesting, and the Muskogee, its fate did become known. Forty years later, in the late 1980s, the son of the Muskogee's captain got hold of some declassified Navy documents and figured out which U-boat had sunk his father's ship. He wrote a letter to the U-boat commander, who was a retired businessman in Germany, and he said, I don't blame you for killing my father. It was an act of war. But I would like to know what happened. The U-boat commander wrote back to him and said, I regretted having to sink your father's ship. We offered him food and water, but it was the middle of the ocean. We had no room to take them aboard. We barely had room for our own guys. And we were on our way to the United States to begin our mission. So we regretted having to leave them there, but that's what happened. And he arranged for the son of the Muskogee's captain to get this and a couple of other photos. Um, the, the, the son of the Muskogee's captain then wrote to spent two years writing to every family member aboard that ship. And by now he was getting a hold of grandnieces and second cousins, but he wrote them all letters to let them know what had happened. And most of them were grateful. A couple even helped him identify people in this photo. So we know who two of the last survivors of the Muskogee are. But not everybody was happy to hear about this, was happy to hear from the Muskogee's captain. One of the families he wrote was the family of Nat Foster, who was from Matthews. And he believed that Nat Foster was one of these guys in the photo, the fourth guy from the left. And he wrote to Nat's niece and said, can you help me identify Nat? And she sent back a very short letter. And it said, I cannot confirm this, and I do not wish to receive any more information. 
so not everybody wanted to relive this part of the war. There are a lot of stories like this in this book, and a lot of stories that uh, have not been told before or have not been told very widely. And part of the reason is they didn't happen during famous battles that have been well documented. They happened during these lonely encounters out at sea between U-boats and you know, men and sinking ships. Um, there is a story in the book about the lifeboat baby. This is the lifeboat baby. This is a baby born at sea in a lifeboat after his mother's ship was torpedoed by a U-boat off Cape Hatteras in a storm. There is a story about a resourceful ship's engineer who saved the lives of everybody in his lifeboat by cobbling together some odds and ends and scraps in the lifeboat and building a still that transformed seawater into drinkable water. And there's an account in the book of uh, Ernest Hemingway's adventures in the U-boat war. And some of you may know this, but Ernest Hemingway uh, in 1942 was living in Cuba and enthusiastically fishing for marlin aboard his fishing boat, the Pilar. Hemingway somehow persuaded American authorities to, to give him a machine gun and a bunch of hand grenades and commission him to patrol the northern coast of Cuba in search of U-boats. And Hemingway's plan was that the U, he would draw the U-boat close, he would pull out the machine gun, sweep the deck, chase all the Germans down the hatch, and then throw the hand grenades in after them and destroy the U-boat. I will leave you to judge whether you think that was a good, a good plan. But uh, as it happened, Hemingway never got any, he did patrol the coast, but he never got, apparently got anywhere close to a U-boat, which was probably a good thing because at that point he had yet to write The Old Man in the Sea. <laughs> he, uh, but he did get enough information from his experiences to write another novel um, called Islands in the Stream. And it's not one of his better known novels. It was published uh, after his death. But in it, a very Hemingway-like protagonist hunts for um, U-boats in a fishing boat off the coast of Cuba. Um, I've got a bunch of other stories, and I, but I'd like to uh, save some time for your questions. I do want to tell you a little bit about what happened to the Merchant Marine after the war. This is a wartime recruiting poster for the Merchant Marine, and you see it has a guy that says, you, you bet I'm going back to sea. And what he means by that is that, you know, no matter how dangerous it is, you know, how many ships are being torpedoed, maybe even if some of my friends have been torpedoed, I'm, going to keep, I'm not going to quit sailing. I'm going to keep going because somebody has to haul that stuff over there. But what strikes me about this photo or this thing is the, the appearance of the mariner. If you look at him, he's certainly a tough-looking guy. But to me, there's something a little sketchy about him. So, you know, he's, he's you know, maybe not the kind of guy you'd necessarily want to bring home to a family dinner. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was sort of the image that the merchant marine had. They weren't welcomed home at the end of the war as conquering heroes, the way people in the armed forces were. They were kind of looked down on. And they had a, a, a lot of people that, groups that didn't like them. Some of the people in the Navy regarded them as uh, undisciplined. You know, they were, they were loose cannons. They didn't follow orders. Uh, people's, other people complained that, you know, they made too much money because, again, they were private citizens. They were union guys. They made bonuses for hauling ships full of explosive. 
uh, material and, and gasoline. But what people didn't understand was they didn't get paid like most people. They got paid, they started getting paid when a voyage began. And they stopped getting paid the minute it ended, even if it ended with a torpedo strike in the middle of the ocean. So these guys were on their own time. They were off the clock when they were fighting off sharks or swimming for their lives. Uh, other people said maybe they're, you know, they're draft dodgers. Why didn't they get in the military? And the truth is a lot of these, some of these guys wanted to be in the military, but the nation needed people to sail these ships. So some of the guys that wanted to be in the military couldn't join. Other guys just wanted to serve their country um, sailing ships, which is what they did, what they were good at. So anyway, at the, at the end of the war, they never actually came home at all. Most of them were still on their ships. They were uh, hauling, they were bringing home the troops or hauling stuff over there to help rebuild the cities of Europe that had been shattered by the war. Um, while they were gone, um, they were left out of the GI Bill, any other government benefits until years later, uh, when a lot of them were too old to really make use of them. Um, there are some efforts going on in Congress, and even now, but there have been for years, to try to do something about this, to give them some recognition or give them some money. But they usually don't get anywhere, which I think is a shame. But honestly, the people in Matthews I talked to, I don't think they were involved in that at all. I think most of them really did. What they did tell me was they kind of wished that people in general would know what they did. One guy said, maybe when your book comes out, my grandkids will finally believe I did something useful during the war. Um, but even the time for that is fleeting. The, uh, when I started working on this book in earnest a few years ago, there were maybe 10 or 15 old Matthews men living in and around Matthews. Uh, today, there's maybe three or four. Uh, one of my favorite Matthews men, Bill Callis, um, who I interviewed numerous times, the last thing he said to me was, if you want me to read this book you're writing, you better hurry up and get it written. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, Bill, because that's what you would say to Bill in a situation like that. And he, uh, but I, I, a few weeks later, I went to his funeral. So uh, I, it's a little bittersweet for me to, be, to have written the book and be talking about it. I, uh, I'm very happy with the way it came out. I've wanted to write a book since I was a kid. And uh, I'm glad I got a chance to tell this story. But I wish I had figured out how to tell it 20 years ago. Um, that's all I've got to say. If we have time, I'd be happy to take some questions. Okay. Sir, when are you getting in touch with Hollywood? <laughs> We've actually uh, have an agent supposedly working on that, but I haven't heard too much about it. I haven't, I haven't really been trying to get too involved with it. You can sort of drive yourself crazy with that. So, uh, but it's, a, it's certainly got some cinema, some movie touches to it, but uh, it's kind of, an I think, an expensive movie to make. It's got stuff blowing up and, you know. Yeah. My name's Jerry Buckner. I'm from Matthews. Uh, I grew up during this period. Uh, I knew a lot of the people that you were talking about, and I knew all their sons. Uh, thank you for writing the book.
ma'am. As you were uh, oh, interviewing folks, did you find uh, a high level of resentment that they had, uh, that the Mariners had not gotten their adequate uh, recognition, or has time kind of faded those things away? I think honestly that time has sort of, you know, I know there's some, still some people working really hard on this. And uh, I, a lot of the Matthews guy, you know, getting them recognition or getting the money or something, but the Matthews guys I talk with, I don't know if they, you know, if they're just not politically, they, you know, they were just sort of into other things, to be honest. They were like to be hanging around their house or fishing or something like that. And I think they just, honestly, I think they gave up a long time ago expecting the government to come back and say, you know what, we should have done right by you. Here's, here's something, you know, I, I, I just don't, but none of them I talked to were really, uh, really seemed to have much anger about that left, although, although they all mentioned it. Sir? Uh, Mr. Giroux, I'm sorry, uh, thank I'm not doing very well here with it. What was his name? Schoenenberger. I'd be interested. I have, I'm telling people that finding these, finding this information was not, there's not like a master list of it anywhere. To, to gather the information for this, you have to sort of do it by, you know, you talk to a guy and you say, do you know any other guys? And occasionally you'll find a, a group of them, but mainly it was by asking asking everybody I found who else they knew that I might ask. And it's, uh, so I, I've, I've, since the book came out, I've encountered a number of families that I think, yeah, gee, I wish I had, wish I had known about them. Uh, sir, in the back there? Yes, Mr. Giroux, uh, thank you very much. I've read your book. Extraordinarily well done. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jack Yunker. I am a volunteer engineer on the steaming Liberty ship John W. Brown. Oh yeah. Which operates out of Baltimore, along with Jeremiah O'Brien in San Francisco, as we do our part to maintain the memory of these men. Thank you for your work, sir. Thanks a lot. Uh, yes, um, this is kind of a trivial thing, but uh, I know you were talking about the young boys in Matthews and growing up and how they get around by uh, on the water. And you talked about the technique of sculling. I never had heard of that. Uh, you said they move those little boats faster than a, a small outboard engine could. Yeah. That's uh, that's what they told me, and I didn't hear that from everybody, but I heard it from enough people after a while. Um, and I'm trying to remember you. Did your dad skull? Yeah. So there's some people in here that are that could vouch for me. I, it was sculling is a uh, is a thing where you get one one oar, one paddle, and you move it behind the boat really fast back and forth, and it propels it forward. You've got you might have the, the you you are better at it than I am, I'm sure, but. Uh, 
it was so distinctive and it was so, it was people in Matthews were so good at it that again, I, this story didn't make the book, but a guy told me that, um, that he was in the Pacific and he, they were in some lagoon waiting to be sent someplace. And he looked and saw a couple of guys in a sculling race across the lagoon. And this was thousands of miles, you know, from, from here or from Matthews. And the guys were so good that the, the, the man who was watching him said, I bet those guys are from Matthews. <laughs> and he went and, and somehow tracked them down and they were from Matthews. <laughs> so it's a, I don't know, it's a. Uh, Bill. Yes. Uh, I'm William Thompson and uh, you were a kid growing up on our neighborhood yeah. street. Uh, and, I remember uh, you. How are you? Uh, I have my. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've got one of my sons here with me today. Uh, you helped check in on my boys. Which one is that? Up. Tommy. Tommy, how are you doing? And, uh, Sorry, we're just saying we're and, a uh, here. You know, uh, I was, I was uh, with your dad uh, the night after your mother died. And uh, when you uh, dedicate your book to us, uh, to her, it just uh, brought back so many nice memories of what a great kid you were on, in our block growing up. <laughs> Well, thank, thanks a lot. Wait, wait for me. Let's at least shake hands. There. Thanks. Um. I grew up in Matthews on Gail's Neck, and I am enjoying your book so much because I'm learning things I never knew before. I didn't know, I didn't know that was Gail's Neck. We had a family of Gales that lived next door, and that was it. And I, uh, my grandfather. Floyd Marchant and my uncle, um, William Marchant, all were in the Merchant Marines. And so I'm just fascinated by what you've written. Thank you so much. I'm not finished yet, so I've got lots more to enjoy. Well, I say, I think those Marchants got in there, didn't they? Yeah, a couple of them got in there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, didn't Gwen's Island produce a huge amount of, of merchant men? Yes, it absolutely. That was, I think, if there was any place in, in Matthews that was the heart of, you know, merchant navy in, in uh, Matthews, it was definitely Gwen's Island. And you can find that in, the, in old newspapers. You know, they've been... You know, they would, any time a Gwyn's Islander would do something interesting, you know, would perform some heroic feat at sea, no matter where it was, somebody else from Gwyn's Island would get hold of the story and write a letter to the paper. And you'd have, here's an account of what Captain So-and-so did in the, you know, in the Western Pacific last month or something. So it was, there was a lot of pride in, and still is, in the island and the, the you know, the fact that so many so many sea captains came from there, and mariners, not just captains, but guys who were just really good mariners. I read, I read your book, and I really enjoyed it. I'm right here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and uh, my family's been going to Matthews for 55 years, just, and my son bought a house down there, and we love the people. They're wonderful. But one of the ways that I learned this before you wrote the book was the museum 
on Gwen's Island, oh, the yeah. school that they have there. And if anybody's interested, lots of these photographs and things are there. And they take great pride in the people who were in the military, but also the merchant marines. But I wanted to ask you, when did our Navy and Air Force start protecting them? I can't remember when that was, and what did they do? Well, it was, it was about, um, first a word about the Gwynn's Island Museum. It's, it's a wonderful little place, very quaint place. And you go there, and it's, it's often closed, but if you call up a number sometimes, <laughs> somebody will come down and <laughs> let you in. And that was the first place I went when I was, uh, when I was working on the uh, book. And I, as you say, there's a lot of stuff in there. And there's some pictures in the book that the first time I saw them was in that, was in that place. Now, the, to answer your question, it was when the war started, and, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of this, we weren't really ready for it. We didn't have the, you know, even though things had been getting worse, we, weren't, we didn't have ships or planes or anything to, to deal with, the, or really armies to deal with the enemy. We were sort of forced into it, obviously, in the Pacific, but we didn't really want to go over there and take on the Germans yet. We, weren't, we didn't really have our, our stuff together. So uh, we were... We put these these ships out there. They had to. They were helping, you know, build planes and build tanks and and you know get us to the point where we could participate meaningful in the in the European war. And uh, it was just a. We were sending these ships around with no protection, and gradually, I mean, the shipyards were working really hard and cranking these ships out. And I'd say by by the maybe the, the end of 1942 or the beginning of 1943, we finally reached sort of a critical mass where we had enough ships and we had enough planes and we, our training was such that we could, we could uh, hold off the U-boats, at least from our own coast, you know, and keep them from doing such damage right in our own waters. And the change happened pretty quickly. So I'd say maybe the, the winter of 1942-43. And by spring of 1943, um, being in a U-boat was a, a, a very dangerous mission. It, it, by the end of the war, it was a suicide mission because the anti-submarine techniques were so good that uh, by the end of the war, it was a death sentence to go sent, to be sent out on a mission in a U-boat. Obviously, you have really enjoyed doing this book, and clearly you do great research and write well, and there has been a real emotional investment in this. What do you do next? Give us a peek into <laughs> what your next story is going to be. Well, I'm trying to write another another book, and I've got a I, I have a couple of possibilities, and both of them are at the point where a, an unexpected dead end in the research could compel me to switch over to the other ones. Uh, uh, one is a, a World War II story, and the other, I think, is a, it's more like the, the revolution. But I haven't really, not to that point yet. I'm getting close. But uh, it is fun to work on. Keep going. We're not getting any younger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello. Uh, I'm interested to know, in talking and interviewing the people that survived and their families, did you find that these people suffered the same emotional damage that soldiers do now as far as their acclimating back to their homes and 
they are also putting behind them um, their experiences so they could move on. And do you feel that coming from such a small place helped them do that? Um, I think that I did encounter uh, in the interviews families that clearly had been had been uh, damaged by this, that, that men had gone through uh, um, terrible things and survived, you know, seen, seen things that, that uh, what the form it took in, among the merchant marine often in, in World War II was the, the torpedo jitters, that you would have people that they were on ships, but they couldn't sleep. They, would, they couldn't sleep at night. They would walk around the deck, you know, with their clothes on, with their life vests on, and they would literally sleep on the deck because they'd possibly been torpedoed once and had a hard time getting out of the ship. And uh, honestly, by the time I was interviewing people in uh, in Matthews, I didn't, you know, a lot of the men that were on these things were 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 deceased. And I got a lot of the, you know, there were a few around, but I got the information a lot of it from their their children. And their children would make references to the fact that you know, dad never could. You know, whenever there was a loud noise, there was one guy that was whenever there was a loud noise, he would hit the floor. I mean, even decades later. And uh, and another guy that uh, took his family, he would wake up at night and uh, believing he was in the engine room of a Liberty ship that was under attack, and he would compel his family to run outside into the yard, you know, in the cold or whatever, until the feeling passed and he no, no longer felt like he was trapped there. But, but I didn't, you know, I, I, I probably saw less of it than you would maybe today because, partly because, um, you know, I, a lot of times I, I heard about it third hand. Um, as far as Matthews being helpful, one of the things that struck me is that Matthews, uh, even though it was a small community, it seemed to me that a lot of the families were dealing with some of their, uh, their losses and their pain um, by themselves. Some of them had close friends, but they, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a... Um, there wasn't like a community, or very rarely would you find the, the community community-wide support. Maybe it was just something they didn't do in those days. But uh, um, a lot of the families just dealt with it on their own, and they had they had done it for years. You know, a lot of these were seafaring families who had grown up knowing that something could happen. So the war added another layer onto that. But they're they were all pretty uh, fatalistic. I mean, they were all pretty. Um, you know, they knew that you could lose somebody at any time at sea. Uh, wouldn't even have to be their fault. So I don't know if I've answered that question very well with that. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned wanting to write a book for quite a while. What were your experiences or research that initially drew you to this particular story and place? Um, I've always loved the sea, and I, I get, just got caught up in the whole U-boat thing, I think, when I realized how close it had been to, you know, to where I was living, and I just got, was fascinated by it and just started reading everything I could. And then, and then to find out that there were a bunch of, uh, some, a group of people in Matthews who had lived through this. As I say, Matthews is a place that I like being anyway. I enjoy being up there. So, and one of the things about, one of the best things about Matthews is that I haven't mentioned is that in Matthews, and some of you know this, everybody knows everybody, everybody. 
So there's so when you would ask somebody, I would and and um, Elsa Verbila, the editor of the the Gloucester Matthews Gazette Journal, I would call her up sometime. I say, you don't happen to know? Ever heard of this guy? This guy? This? You know, I'd give her a list of like six guys, and in in ten minutes, I'd get it back. And here's his here's where his, here's his granddaughter's phone number. You know, she just so. But everybody in Matthews was like that, and they all remembered. They had amazing memories, and they'd say, oh, this guy's just down at the end of the creek. Go talk to him. There's no sign, but he's down there. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's an, if you're ever going to, I thought, if you're ever going to find a place where you can recreate a 70-year-old a boar story, you know, that people have forgot about it, it's Matthews, because you know, nothing has ever forgotten down there, I don't think, and, and, <laughs> and, and, nor is, and nobody is. So 